0: Good morning. Well, I hope you are enjoying some of the, uh, new songs or the refreshment of, uh, old songs. And, uh, we hope to, uh, add to our repertoire, our chorus book, and all, um, <clears throat> learn some new songs of praise to the Lord. We sang one this morning. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has a profound effect in the lives of believers. And uh, we, wanted, we are actually in the midst of a study of the New Testament. And for some of our visitors today, you're probably expecting a full-fledged um, Easter message. And uh, traditionally, we don't do that. And instead, we um, continue on in our study of the scripture that uh, we're in at the time. So we've been in the midst of a study of the books of the New Testament. And this morning, we have come to the um, letter, the second letter to Timothy. And let's just turn to that book now. Second Timothy, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. So, if you're visiting and expecting an Easter message this morning, just keep coming back week after week, and eventually we'll get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. (laughs) And we'll look at it in the context of, um, of that book. Good study of the Word of God. So, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> I'm going to stop there for just a minute. Timothy, this is actually the last letter that Paul wrote. This is his final um, epistle. Paul, at this moment in his life, is facing certain death and he knows it. And yet as we read through this letter there's an amazing thing about it is that Paul is not despondent he is not discouraged if you knew that you were facing certain death just by sickness wouldn't you feel a little bit like that? But if you knew you were facing certain death because of your stand for the gospel's sake how would you feel? You have taken a stand in preaching the gospel, and you're facing death because of it. How would you feel? Paul actually rejoices. The interesting thing about this letter, there is somebody in this book, <clears throat> or in this letter, that is discouraged, but it's not Paul. It's Timothy. And Paul, facing death, writes to Timothy to encourage him and to take a stand and um So, as I read it, it's interesting to me that Paul is not consumed with himself, but he's consumed with the needs that others have. Tremendous place uh, in him, especially his son in the faith, Timothy. This letter actually is a great encouragement to anyone who serves the Lord, whether elders or deacons, missionaries, full-time workers, uh, Sunday school teachers. Uh, the, the, the kids that uh, conduct the HMI on Friday nights, whatever your service is for the Lord, this letter is for you, especially if you're going through a time of discouragement and uh, difficulties. Any service for the Lord can have difficulties, can have trials, can have discouragement, and even tears. But there are great truths found in this book <clears throat> to encourage every worker, even in the darkest night. Now, the, the letter is also prophetic in nature. Paul looks not just at the immediate circumstances, but he looks well into the future, probably further than he himself even knew. He looked past what was happening right there and then, and he may not have realized how far into the future he was writing about, but our date and our time is stamped in the words of this book. Timothy was sent to Ephesus, as we learned in First the first epistle of Timothy, to set things in the church in order. And uh, he needed to appoint elders and deacons. He needed to deal with false teachers who had risen up to straighten out doctrinal errors. He had to confront false teachers. He had to um, resolve problems that had risen in the church, um, such as the neglect for widows, uh, teaching proper behavior of servants, and exhorting the rich, and confronted with these issues. It's enough to overwhelm anybody, but Timothy was a rather timid person. And so for him to have to face these almost daunting tasks in a church, I think they overwhelmed him. And we have to realize, too, that Timothy did not have an advantage that we have. He didn't have um, church growth manuals. Now, that was actually a, a joke. I don't know if you knew that or not. <laughs> he didn't have self-help books down at the local Christian uh, bookstore, the how-tos of making a church work. He didn't have um, seminars to attend. No, all he had was the life experience and the teaching that he had heard from the Apostle Paul and the Lord himself. Well, he was actually on very good... Very solid ground then, wasn't he? You know, it's one thing to sit on the sidelines in Christian work and to watch people in the work of the Lord and to be a Monday Monday morning uh, quarterback. It's another thing to roll up your sleeves and get involved in the work. And Timothy was involved in the work. Uh, it's quite quite a thing to be involved in the thick of problems and problem people and to really... Um, make proper and sound judgments. We, we learn from the clues that are in First and Second Timothy that some people despise Timothy because of his age. Ah, he's just a young guy. What has he got to tell me? I've lived longer than he has. Some actually caused fear in Timothy. They, they made him afraid, you know. And some brought him to tears. That's what he was up against. It would not surprise me if you were to have a little chat with Timothy at this time of his life, if he was ready at times to throw in the towel and say, you know what, I just can't do it. I can't do it anymore. I just can't do it. And Paul must have heard that Timothy was feeling discouraged and despondent. And I believe that's part of the reason that he wrote this letter at this time to Timothy. You ever felt that way? You ever felt that way? Um, Have thoughts ever crossed your mind? What's the point? What's the point of of doing this anymore? What's the point of serving the Lord? (gasps) Would anybody think that way? Yeah. Yeah. The great stalwarts of the faith, as a matter of fact, thought that way. I think of David. There were times when he felt that way. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Elijah, just take me. You know, enough already. Many many godly men have had discouraging emotions. And Timothy seems to be dragging here. The difficulties overwhelmed him and brought him to tears. So who does God use to cheer him up? Paul. And where is Paul? In prison. And what's he facing? Certain death. If anybody in this story should be discouraged... It should be Paul. And God uses Paul to encourage Timothy. Good lesson. Last letter that Paul uh, sent. It is good to read it. Um, It's a very tender letter in many spots, particularly when it comes to the relationship between Paul and Timothy. He speaks to him as a beloved son. He reminds him of his upbringing. Paul knew Uh, His history. He knew his his mother and his grandmother. And he encourages him to press on in spite of opposition. It's just the kind of encouragement that someone who is down, someone who is blue needs. Let's take a look at verses uh, 3 through 5. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. Wow. Paul lets Timothy know that he is relentlessly storming the gates of heaven um, about his needs every night and every day. You know, it's so important if you're serving the Lord in any capacity to have people praying for you, to have people praying for you. And Paul was praying for Timothy in this uh, concerning time. He also reminds him of his godly upbringing. He says, uh, "Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also." How many of you have ever felt blue serving the Lord? Okay, a a few honest hands have gone up. That's good felt blue serving the lord you know what i have found to be the greatest cure for blues in serving the lord rolling up my sleeves and doing more <laughs> really one of the cures is to be active in the work of the lord why because it gets your eyes off yourself and gets it onto the needs of others where it needs to be your eyes need to be there on the welfare of others um Paul answers some of the, the issues here in, uh, in this book. So let's take a look at um, what he says to Timothy. Here, First of all, he has a call to renewed service. Verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Paul challenges Timothy here to get right back into the battle. When a believer is facing, or is feeling overwhelmed, or blue, or discouraged, I'll tell you something. That is the time when Satan loves to kick him. It's also a time, funny enough, when the believer is often faced with friendly fire. And what's friendly fire? It's when you're being shot by your own guys. Okay? It often happens when a person is down, and Satan loves to use those times of discouragement to try to get the Christian to just quit, give up, just walk away. It's not worth it. But Paul encourages him to get right back in, into the battle. Stir up the gift that is in you. He says, God has not given us the spirit of fear. We sang, as I mentioned already, and as you remember singing, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. You know, Uh, as I look at, at this passage here, it says, God has not given us the spirit of fear. Not given us the spirit of fear. Fear is not from God. God gives us power, He gives us love, He gives us a sound mind. A sound mind is a mind that thinks straight. It thinks straight. It's not given to fanaticism. It doesn't go in a thousand different directions when the the going gets tough. It's not rattled by discouragements or disappointments or circumstances. God gives a clear mind to those whose minds are fixed on God and on His Word. Another trick Satan uses is to discourage believers when they look at stronger believers... Or older believers who are going through trouble and are saying, he lived godly. He lived a godly life. And look at the trouble he's going through. Why should I even try? Why should I even try? They fret because the evil person seems to be getting away with everything and the righteous seem to be suffering. Again, go back to the scripture. David faced the same thing. And as he talked about this in the Psalms, he he was faced with this dilemma. Do you know something? Not only do we see it here, but we see it again later in the book. God has called us as believers to suffer for his sake. All who live godly will suffer persecution, the scripture says. This should not surprise us. This should not be alarming to us. This is our calling. This is our... um, expectation. If you live a righteous life, you will suffer persecution. But don't be ashamed if you suffer persecution for the Lord's sake. So, here, rather than running from his trouble, Timothy is encouraged to stir up the gift of God and get back into the fray. Alright, next, let's take a look at the next section um, in chapter 1. And I'm going to title this one, Do Not Be Ashamed. Do Not Be Ashamed. The phrase, not ashamed, appears three times in the rest of this chapter. When things get difficult in a believer's life, there is a tendency to di- want to distance yourself from other believers. There is a tendency to do that, especially if they're being persecuted or when they're being troubled because of following God's Word. We tend to want to, <clears throat> I think I just broke this. We tend to want to, uh, run the other way. So let's take a look at what Paul says here. Just, just uh, follow me here, starting in verse 8. And we're just going to kind of skip through some verses here. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Then go down to verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. And then go down to verse uh, 16. The Lord grant mercy to the household of uh, a for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my shame. Let's take a look at all three of these, just one at a time. Paul says to Timothy, first of all, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Why was he in prison? He was in prison for sharing the gospel, for preaching the gospel. In fact, not only does he say to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, don't be ashamed of me, he says, share with me in the suffering for the gospel. What a note of confidence. It's like he's saying, come on in, Timothy, the water's fine. Paul's in prison. He's going to die for his faith. And he's saying, come on in, Timothy. The water's fine. Would you go? Would you jump in? That's what he's asking Timothy to do. Don't be ashamed of me. I'm here for Christ's sake. I'm here for the gospel's sake. Do the same. Do the same. Share with me in the suffering for the gospel. Why can Paul be so optimistic about Suffering, because God saved us, and He chose to save us before time began. He's he's giving us a little clue into God's plan of salvation here, and He says, Look, before there was even time, God chose you before the foundation of the world. And in time, Christ came, and we heard the gospel, and we believed the gospel, and we're saved, and we're on our way to heaven. This isn't all there is. This is temporary. I'm going home to be with Jesus. So don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the gospel that I preach. Come on, get involved. Preach the gospel. There are plenty of others who still haven't heard. That's what he's talking about here. Satan may throw all the barbs and arrows and weapons of mass destruction at Christians to discourage them and to make them ineffective. But don't lose sight of the fact that we are on the winning side. I love I love that song that says, I read the back of the book and we win. <laughs> and we win. Actually, Christ has already won. We're just participants with Him in that sense. He will come to deliver us from this world. Don't be ashamed of me. Share with me in the sufferings for the gospel. Then, second, Paul says of himself, I am a, verse uh, 11, I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. The Greeks ridiculed him. The Jews wanted to kill him. He was in prison in Rome. He was waiting his execution. And yet Paul could say here that he was not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because Paul said, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Wow, that's a great phrase. I love it. All of that, that phrase, to keep what I have committed to him, is actually two words in Greek. We had to say all that to to accomplish what Greek said in two words. He said, I have made my deposit. When you make a deposit, where do you do that? Usually in a bank, right? And what you are doing when you take your money and you make that deposit, you are expecting the bank to keep it in safekeeping until you need it. And they usually do a pretty good job of that so far. Paul preached the gospel. He was making deposits in the bank of heaven. And the returns aren't 5%, 6%, 7%. They're out of this world. They're eternal. As he preached the gospel, people got saved. He has eternal fruit from the preaching of the gospel. And he said, yeah, there's opposition. Yeah, there is persecution. Yes, there will be trials and perhaps even death. But souls are saved for all eternity. And that deposit can never be touched. And so Paul challenges Timothy to hold fast to the pattern of sound words. In other words, preach the gospel that I preached. Preach the same gospel and you too will see fruit. I am not ashamed that I am a teacher. I am not ashamed that I am an apostle. I am not ashamed that I am a preacher of this gospel that saves. And neither should we. Paul next uh, talks about, well, he doesn't dodge the fact that there were some who turned from him. In fact, it says, many abandoned him. He says, all in Asia. That's a lot. All in Asia, including, and two by name, by Jealous and Hermogenes. But there was one bright star in the blackest night here, and that was the man on a He said, that good thing which was, verse 14, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. Probably in doing that, he was risking his own life any kind of an association with this apostle but he he sought him out found him and the Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day and you know very well how many how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus <clears throat> Paul says of honestcepphrus he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains really what he's saying to Timothy is this look most people may be against me but honestcephorus wasn't you be like Honest Ephesus. Follow his example. He didn't run from me. He was not ashamed to be associated with Paul, even in prison. and came to minister to his needs. All right, let's take a look now at uh, 2 Timothy, uh, verse 2, uh, chapter 2, I'm sorry. Paul wants to continue to strengthen, to encourage, to give help to his son in the faith. <clears throat> and he does so with seven simple illustrations that are meant to encourage not only timothy but they're meant to encourage us too paul compares believers in this chapter to a son a soldier an athlete a farmer a worker a vessel and a servant so let's take a look at each of those and see what he has to say first of all in verses one and two um, a son here, Paul is like a father, and he's speaking to his son, and uh, he points him first to the Lord Jesus Christ and reminds him that it is God's grace that will strengthen him for the service that is demanded of him. My grace is sufficient, Jesus said. But you know, as a father, suppose you were to, t- this is kind of a crude illustration perhaps, but it might help you. Your son is about to get married, and you want to give him the kind of that, Final talk, you know, and encourage him to, you know, step up to the plates and and be a faithful husband and reproduce himself. You want to see the grandchildren coming and so on. And that's kind of the view that I have here of, of Paul speaking with Timothy. He's saying, Look, Timothy, you're my son in the faith. I taught you everything I know. And those things that I taught you, I want you now to be able to teach others. Let's take a look at what he has to say here. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Be a son who will reproduce himself over and over again in the lives of others. What do we call that? Discipleship. That's what we call it. It's the view that you have been taught. You have a precious trust, if you will, from, uh, from the Lord and from those who have taught you. Now take what has been entrusted to you and teach others also. But not just anybody. Be selective. Take a look for men and women who are solid, who are going to be able to reproduce themselves also. That's what he's talking about here. Faithful men. Uh, who will also teach? Who will teach others also? <clears throat> Next illustration is of a soldier, verse um, three and four. Paul is straightforward. Look, brothers and sisters, in case you didn't know, we're in a battle. We're the foot soldiers, and as such, we must endure hardship. Really, Paul is saying, Timothy, don't run from the hard tasks. Don't run from the battle. Take your share of the hardships that are coming. You know, I don't know if this is going to make sense to you or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. There is a level of um, intimacy that many Christians never experience with the Lord. They never do. And it's not because the Lord doesn't want them to have that intimacy. He does. But it's because they run from it. They avoid it. They turn from it. It's a level of intimacy that the Savior experienced when he was on earth. I mean, it's a level of um, difficulty that the Lord experienced when he was on earth. It says of him that uh, he endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. And when you put yourself in harm's way for the sake of the gospel or for the Lord's sake, for the sake of the saints. You enjoy a level of fellowship and intimacy with the Savior that you cannot experience any other way. Paul says here, You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him, who enlisted him as a soldier. The idea here is not just that you've been commanded by the commander-in-chief to do something, but it's almost like you just know intuitively what the Lord wants you to do, and you do it. The best illustration of this that I can think of is the case where David said, um, Oh, for water from the wells of Bethlehem. In other words, he's in a position where uh, there's a battle going on. The enemies really uh, control the territory where Bethlehem is, and he grew up there, and he remembers the refreshing water from a well in Bethlehem. And he just kind of uttered a, man, it'd be nice to have a drink from that well. And two of his men break through enemy lines and get him a drink of water from that well. It's incredible. Just because of his sigh for the water. They weren't commanded to do that, but they did it because they knew that's what pleased him. That's what he wanted. Now David, of course, took it and poured the water out uh, before the Lord. They they risked their lives. But this is the kind of intimacy that I'm talking about, where we just walk in such a way with the Lord that we know what he wants us to do. And his sighs, if you will, become our desire as well. I hope you can experience that intimacy with the Lord. Third, an athlete. Verse 5. Pat Milton, an Associated Press writer, writes about the Olympic athlete who used performance-enhancing drugs and had her um, medals stripped from her. She says this, Marion Jones tried to choke back the tears streaming down her face and bowed her head in a desperate effort to regain the composure that used to be her trademark. The strong, poised woman who was once a symbol for everything right about women women in sports was long gone. She was now a liar and a cheat. Her sins laid bare for everyone to see. This is an unsaved person writing about an athlete who lied about taking performance-enhancing drugs. Paul writes in verse 5, And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Paul encourages Timothy to get into the race, to compete well, to shoot for the gold. But just as there are rules in athletic competitions, so there are rules in spiritual matters that must be followed. Next illustration is the farmer. The hard-working farmer, verse 6, must be first to partake of the crops. Most Christians want an abundant, fruitful life. They want to see fruit, and they want to see it in great proportion. Right? Isn't that a desire that we all have as believers? I think it is. But there's a, there's a uh, clue in this as to how to get that. It says here, the hard-working farmer. Many workers want the reward of the abundant fruit, but they don't want to put in the time. They're unwilling to put in the time and the effort to get the job done. It's the hard-working farmer who enjoys the fruit of his labors. Paul points to the reward, but he also gives us the path to get to that reward, the way to get to it. Be a hard-working farmer in the work of the Lord. Paul then reminds Timothy to remember the Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the dead according to the gospel. Paul shows himself to be a good soldier, that he suffered trouble and endured all things for the elect's sake. Then he declares some wonderful truths of the gospel in verses 11 through 13, that we are identified with Christ in his death and his resurrection and that we will reign with him and that he will remain faithful. The next illustration is a worker. Verse 15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This means that we are to continuously put ourselves at God's disposal for whatever work He wants us to do. That's really what it means. Whatever capacity, whatever work He wants us to do. And we are, uh, as we prove our seriousness about putting Him first, He gives us further work to do. The worker. This is really a skilled worker that Paul is talking about here. Skilled at handling the Word of God. And how did he become so skilled? Well, there's only one way that I know to become skilled in this book. You know what it is? Spending time in it. Long, lonely, lonely, Lonely hours in it, okay? Study to show yourself approved unto God. There's no other way. I'm sorry. There's no self-help trick. There's no tapes you can listen to at night and just bring it all in by osmosis. It doesn't work that way. It's the diligent study of this book that is going to make a difference um, in this case. Giving up legitimate pleasures to spend time in that book. Saying no to things that are morally neutral, to spend time in that book. Saying no to sleep, either late at night or early in the morning, to spend time in that book. I'm sorry, there's no other way. But the rewards are eternal. It's worth it. He who studies this book becomes a skilled worker. And as a result, he is able to handle... Whatever work the Lord gives him to do, whatever the Lord brings to him, uh, even addressing men who have strayed from the faith. Paul then says to Timothy, "...shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymeneus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already passed." and they overthrow the faith of some. Brothers and sisters, let me me just ask you this. Suppose you were faced with two people like that. How would you deal with them? How would you handle them? What answer could you give them? It comes from this book. And if you don't know this book, you can't give an answer. Spend time in the book. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Next is a vessel for honor. It says, verse 20, but in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. I live in a big house. Well, let me rephrase that. I sometimes live in a big house. And in this house, we have vessels of honor. One of the vessels of honor is a cut glass uh, vase, or vase, depending on whether you're French or not. And you put it on the table, and it's beautiful. It's huge. We we, we use it for very special occasions. My wife's birthday. um, My wife's birthday. (laughs) You know, put flowers in it. And it sits in a prominent place everyone to see vessel of honor but then i also have a bucket that i use for my mop to clean the dirty tile floors after our guests have left and i don't put the two together they don't belong together and that dirty bucket doesn't belong in a place of prominence in my house it's out in the garage or it's outside depending on how it smells on any particular day Vessels of honor and dishonor. Seems that the vessels for honor and the vessels of dishonor in this chapter probably refer to people. And the people that he's talking about are vessels of honor would be like Paul and Timothy and others like them. And the vessels for dishonor must be the false teachers like Hymenaeus and Philetus. Cleansing himself from the latter must have something to do with distancing himself from these false teachers, just like I would not put that cut glass vase inside of that dirty bucket. There has to be a separation, a separation of the vessels of honor and the vessels of dishonor. Distancing himself from false teachers and false doctrine. Being true to the word, rightly dividing the word of truth, that's what will make him useful for the master and prepared for every good work. There are also some other things to avoid, Paul says. He says, flee also youthful Lusts. It doesn't necessarily mean sexual lust, although that's included, but it means anything that takes your heart away from the Lord. Anything that is a desire so strong that it takes place uh, in your heart. Flee youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Finally, the last illustration in this chapter is a servant, a servant of the Lord. And verse 24 says, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. A servant of the Lord. God is interested not just in what we do, but he's also interested in what we are in and of ourselves as people. And so Paul looks here at the character traits of a servant of the Lord. Gentleness, patience, humility. Sounds like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? That must be true in our lives if we are going to be servants of the Lord. Chapter 3. This is a chapter which is a prophetic chapter. It looks to the future. And as I say, it really has to do with the church in the last days. And I'm going to talk about this in a minute. Some of the problems that are named here were already beginning to surface in Paul's day. But they have come to full bloom in our day. Let me read you the list here first of all. Chapter 3, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. I'm going to stop here for just a minute. We don't get the sense in English of the next verses, but I'm going to bring them out to you as we go. In the Greek there is a letter a that comes at the beginning of many of the following words we do something similar in english where we say theist and atheist moral and amoral or amoral depending on how you emphasize the a part of it okay and so it's with, it really means without uh someone who is amoral is someone who has no morality um an atheist, of course, someone who doesn't believe in God. So the, the the words that are used next in Greek all start with that letter A, which which means without. And so listen to it that way: without obedience to parents, without thankfulness, without holiness, without love, without forgiveness. In other words. It's not just that they're not quite up to what they should be. It's missing entirely. Slanderers. I'll give you another Greek lesson here. We have a mountain, they call it, nearby here called Mount Diablo. What does that mean? Devil's Mountain. Diablo. Devil's Mountain. The word that is used here, slanderer, is a form of that word. I'm not going to try to pronounce it in Greek, but basically diabolu or something like that, okay? So my Greek is lousy, but it means, in fact, it's the very word that is used and is translated devil most of the time in the scripture. Okay? Slanders. Why do you think that is? Who is the accuser of the brethren? Who slanders believers before God? It is Satan himself. And when a person slanders Another believer, another person. They are taking the place of the devil. Do you understand that? That's what he's talking about here. It's no small matter to use these lips to bring somebody else down um, that way. Again, he goes back to the use of that A, first of all. Without self-control. Brutal. Without good. Or it says despisers of good, but it says no good in them. There is no good. Traitors. Headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Again, here, the emphasis is hard to see in the English, but it's, it's, it, this is what it means. It's not that their love for pleasure is just greater than their love for God. It's that they have no love for God, and all they have is a love for pleasure. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. False teaching always leads and false beliefs always leads to false or to um, immoral behavior. That's what he's talking about here. Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Johnnys and Jambres resisted Moses, who are Johnnys and Jambres? They're not named in the scripture, actually. And so tradition has it that they are the two magicians who stood in Pharaoh's court when Moses was there. And every time Moses did some kind of a miracle, they mimicked it. They copied it. They tried to, to be like him. And they had a form of power, but they really didn't have power. It was a trick. What Moses did was the real thing. And they finally had to admit that. And the same is true here in a spiritual sense. They have a form of godliness. It looks like they might be believers. It looks like they might really be uh, spiritual. But there's no power. They don't really know God. And so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs, that is Johnny's and Jombray's, also was God showed his power in Egypt and they recognized in fact I think they even said it this is the finger of God they finally had to come to that point so will these people as well know this that in the last days perilous times will come the last days it's a common phrase describing the period just prior to the close of this age Paul says, in the last days, perilous times shall come. He lists the moral corruption that will be evidence in the last days. And so quite naturally, the question arises, well, okay, I mean, I I read this list and I say, uh, at at what point in history have men been any different than described here? Doesn't Paul give us a similar list in Romans chapter 1? How are the ones in the last days any different than the ones described in Romans chapter 1? Are they any different? Well, we must admit that men have always been like this ever since the fall. Sin entered the world, and they've always been like this. The heathen could always be described in these terms. But here in 2 Timothy, Paul is not describing the heathen again. He is describing here those who are in the professing church. That's the difference between that list in Romans and this list here and this should be alarming to us i want to consider the history of the church at ephesus for just a minute paul went there and he caused quite a stir in that city for he t- and he taught there for about 3 years it was at ephesus that the magicians got saved and you remember they took their magic books out into the city square and they made a great big pile and they lit the pile on fire they had a great big bonfire burning all of their magician books. You remember that this was really an indication of the the repentance that had taken place in their lives. They turned from their sin, and they turned to the Savior. It was in Ephesus that the whole city was filled with confusion and cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And it was there that Paul labored night and day, warning with tears. It was to the church at Ephesus he wrote the great epistle of Ephesians. Paul, um, a great treatise of doctrine and practice. It was the elders of Ephesus that he called to meet him on the shore by Miletus to warn them that grievous wolves would enter in, not sparing the flock. Paul saw that they were headed for trouble. It was to the church at Ephesus that Paul sent Timothy with their command to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Uh, that's in First Timothy. And it is to the church at Ephesus that the one who is the Alpha and Omega said, Nevertheless, I have something against you, because you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen, and repent. Now in Second Timothy 3, we have the state of the church in the last days. You have left your first love. That's what we find here in this chapter. Lovers of self. Lovers of money. Lovers of pleasure. And not lovers of God. Could it be in the professing church that the church will come to this? what he says. There are 21 features of the church in the last days. This list by itself Would make a profound study, and we don't have the time for it today. But it is fertile soil for the elders, in particular, I would say, uh, to be watchful about these things, these conditions in the church in the last days. 21 things that typify the professing church today. We must be alert to these conditions creeping into the hearts and to the lives of individual believers. And into the life, the body life of the church, and we must separate ourselves from such people. The Bible says that from such people, turn away. You say, well, if that's the condition of the church in the last days, forget it. I'm out of here. And many people would take that view. Many people would take that that uh, that feeling. That would have that feeling about it and say, it's just too hard, it's too much. I can't can't bear it. But Paul doesn't throw up his hands. He doesn't discourage Timothy. In fact, he encourages Timothy to patiently... um, Well, let's take a look at what he says. Verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Brethren, this is our calling. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Though he suffered for the sake of the Lord and the sake of the gospel, It says here that the Lord delivered him out of all persecutions. And all of us who live godly will suffer persecution. It's a spiritual inevitability. Jesus said when he was on earth, beware when all men speak well of you. There's something wrong if you're taking the same stand that Jesus took and he was crucified and men speak well of you. There's something wrong. If you're taking the same stand he took Men will not speak well of you. Contrast is with evil men. They will proceed from bad to worse. Evil's full development will be when the deceivers become deceived themselves. They will deceive themselves. In verses 14 through 17, we have our marching orders. He says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not only is the Scripture able to lead one to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is inspired of God. God breathed. What we have in our hands is the precious possession of every believer. God breathed. This is His Word to us. And the closer we stick to the Word, the closer we are to Him, the closer we are uh, to being um, a faithful worker, equipped for every good work, he says here. The the, uh, study of the Word of God is not meant to just simply expand our head knowledge or fill our uh, filing cabinets with uh, great outlines of, of the Bible. Those things are all helpful. They're tools. But that's not what it's meant for. It's really meant to make us complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right, chapter 4. In this final chapter... Paul reminds Timothy that the Lord is coming soon and He will judge the earth or judge the world, I should say. Timothy, I love you as a son. Timothy, there's a work to be done. And so it's just this last section of of, uh, the, the book is just filled with exhortations. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, Exhort with all long suffering and teaching, <laughs> I feel like I just had a little taste of Jean Gibson again. <laughs> Many of you knew Jean, and he was uh, uh we were actually talking about him on the way down to uh, to church this morning that um, I remember as a as a young kid coming out of Canada and and sitting under his teaching for the first time. I remember my roommate said to me after my first counseling session with Jean where Jean kind of you know uh looked at 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 my life my goals my plans and ripped them to shreds and then sent me out to redo them and he says uh so how was the meeting because he was next I said well let me let me put it this way I feel like I was just hit by a Mack truck what does that tell you you know and uh so he went in and had his session but Tim but Paul is like that in a sense you know Gene was a uh, uh, uh <laughs> he was an exhorter. I almost said an and no, That's not very good. He was an exhorter. <laughs> Gene would really see the issues that were needed in a person's life and just go right for them. And that's what Paul does here with Timothy. Preach the word. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Who's the they there? I really think he's going back to the previous chapter and saying, look, it's the church. It's the congregation. They're not going to be satisfied with solid meat and potatoes teaching and preaching from the Word. What they're going to want is they're going to want programs. They're going to want to have uh, things that tickle their ear. They're going to want to, to be told that everything is okay and that they're on their way to heaven and that they can go ahead and live any way they want to live at all. Just turn on the TV and you're going to see these guys a dime a dozen. And they have the largest churches in America today. And they're teaching false doctrine. And I've turned on many of them and I hear Christians say, Oh, don't you just love so and so? No, I don't. I'm sorry. He's teaching false doctrine and he's leading people astray. And it goes on every day on television and particularly on Sundays. It says they will, um, not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires because they have itching ears will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. It's interesting to me here, there's a little twist in this section. Normally Paul goes right for the jugular and he talks against false teachers. That's not what he's doing here. Now he does talk about them, but that's not who he's addressing at this point. He's talking about the the saints, the people who are in the congregation, the, the believers who are piling up for themselves, these teachers, to themselves. In other words, they're doing it. Now, the, the false teachers are wrong. Don't get, don't misunderstand me. But who's at fault? Who does Paul blame here? It's those who want to hear that. They don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be uh, taught the truth. How's your heart today? Do you love the Word of God? Amen. Do you want the meat and potatoes of His Word? Does it? Do you go out of here and say, you know what, I, I really see... Lord, you've taught me again that there's some areas in my life I need to change. I hope that's the case. I hope it's the case. But you, Paul, Paul says to Timothy, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. In other words, Timothy, you may be discouraged. You may be despondent. You may be full of tears. But now is not the time to quit. We're almost there. We're almost there. Since the Lord is coming soon, we need to be more energetic in our preaching of the gospel and teaching of the truth, as we see next. Paul looks back at his life, and it's finished, and he knows it. He's at the very end of a, a long uh, career of serving the Lord. He's not ashamed of anything that he has done as a believer. He says of his past as a, as a proper Jew and following Judaism, he says, I count it all but dung." But as far as the things concerning the gospel are concerned, he says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There is no fear of death to to this one who has who been serving the Lord so faithfully. What should he fear? He served the Lord well. He did what the Lord wanted him to do, and he knows that his departure is at hand. He's going to be with the Lord, and when the Lord judges the believers to give out the rewards that he has promised, Paul is going to get the reward. And I know what he's going to do with it. And I've heard the same from many of you, that if I get any crown from the Lord at all, for righteousness, service, in any capacity. I know the place is not on my head. It's at the feet of the Blessed One who died for me and rose again. That's where it belongs. Then he talks about all those who have uh, been left behind. I'm not going to go through the whole list. It's a lot of names of people that you don't know. And uh, there are some that you do. Um, But he does encourage uh, Timothy to come to him quickly, both in verse 9 and twenty one he talks here about those who did not stand with him, but how the Lord stood with him and strengthened him. But I just want to end for uh, end the message this morning with verse eight: Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only but also, uh, but also to all who have loved his appearing. <coughs> In this last word of encouragement to Timothy, Paul points to the future. There is a future reward for faithful service, a crown of righteousness. Therefore, press on in the work. Never give up. Never be discouraged. second thing he brings out here is there is a righteous judge. Boy, I tell you, I'm glad about that. You and I have both heard of enough court cases where unrighteousness prevailed where things, you walk away from it after hearing a case. Many of you followed some prominent cases in this country. And you walk away and what? How could that possibly be? It just seems like it smacks of unrighteousness. But there is a righteous judge. That's encouraging. All of the injustices that believers have faced, that believers have endured, will be corrected. The Bible says, woe to you who call evil good and good evil. God's justice will be swift and we can be absolutely sure that it will be just. He will punish the wicked and He will reward the righteous. He is a righteous judge. Brothers and sisters, let me just say this. Considering the fact that I believe we are in the last days. As I see the conditions that Paul talked about in chapter 3, I see it. I hope you can see it. I believe we are in the last days. Don't succumb to the chill of your spiritual environment. Don't succumb to the chill of your spiritual environment. Honor the Lord with faithful, wholehearted, happy service for the King. For God, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. There is a reward. The crown of righteousness to all who have loved His appearing. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before You today, the attention of much of the world is um, on that place in uh, the Middle East, in Israel, where You, Lord Jesus, were buried after You died on the cross for our sins. We thank You that that grave is empty. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are risen, ascended at the right hand of the Father. We thank you that the promise of your word is true, and amen. We thank you that you are coming back and that you will judge the world in righteousness. But Lord, we know that there is much work to be done, and we pray, Lord, that you would take away any cause for discouragement or uh, disillusionment or any other form of um, of turning away. And we pray, Lord, that we might roll up our sleeves, get right back into the thick of the battle, and serve you with all of our hearts, our minds, our being. Lord, we want to demonstrate that we love you with all our being. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to serve you, even in these dark hours. Lord, as we think of the the last days and the condition of the professing church Lord, we pray that we might be men and women of the book, men and women of the Bible, studying it, learning from it. And Lord, that we might not shy away from the fellowship of suffering that uh, we might enjoy with you. We pray, Lord, that we would not shun or or, uh, flee from the work that you give us to do. Lord, we pray that you would grant to us fruit in every work that you have assigned for us. We pray that we would be fruitful in the gospel and that Lord we might be able to find those faithful men and women that we might be able to teach them so that they might teach others also. Lord, we think of the great work that is ahead of us and we pray, Lord, that uh we would not be flagging or lagging or lacking in any way. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength, the grace that we need to endure all that is before us. We pray that we might live in such a way to bring you honor and glory and that, Lord, any reward that you have for us, that is offered to us, that we might, like the saints who have gone before us, lay these crowns, these prizes at your feet in worship and adoration for all that you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.